Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Konstantinos Lazaridis, who is the Carlson & Nelson Endowed Executive Director of the Center for Individualized Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. By training, he's a doctor that's focused on liver disease, in particular, a number of rare liver diseases. But over the years, his remit has expanded to include what I think is one of the most innovative medical centers in the entire world. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Pleasure is mine, and thank you for having me. I would love to just start with the Center for Individualized Medicine. How did you get there? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the role of this center and how long it's been around. I think it's relatively new, but has made quite a number of waves in the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, the center was established back in 2011, almost more than a decade. And the goal of the center was to create an entity within the institution that was separate from existing clinical departments to be able to take innovative approaches and bring them to the practice. As you said earlier, I'm a gastroenterologist, hematologist by training, and I still practice a small portion of my time, but I study the genetics of two rare liver conditions. And with this background, when there was an opportunity to be part of the center, I applied for the position of the associate director with a goal to implement genomics to the clinical practice. That was my assignment. So I have been with the center for the last decade, became the executive director two years ago. And so it was my genetics background that brought me forward to be able to be part of this center. Ten years ago, we wanted to introduce genome or exome sequencing for patients with diagnostic odyssey. That's how we started. And also to support patients with advanced cancers who failed traditional radiation or chemotherapy. That was our initial effort, and we learned through this process that genomic medicine truly can make an impact. For Diagnostic Odyssey, we found that applying proper testing, we can identify the cause of the disease in about 27, 30% of the cases. And for advanced cases of cancer, we found that in selected cases, we can truly impact the survival of these patients by doing the proper sequencing of the tumor and the germline to look for targets of therapy. As we were doing this type of work, we realized that predictive genomics will be of importance, and we took advantage of an existing program, an executive health program at the Mayo Clinic, which was open to the idea to apply predictive genomics, and we started this in 2014. And we had the paper out of this work indicating that if you take a healthy population and you apply predictive genomic testing, about 15% of them, they will have something about this effort for which we're going to be able to take action. And as we were doing this type of work in Diagnostic Odyssey, we found that some of the rare diseases that may be undiagnosed, maybe they have a phenotype that we didn't realize. And this makes us to think in a different way. And we took the opportunity and initiative to study gene panels of patients with rare conditions. With this in mind, we created the program for rare and diagnosed diseases, where it combines rare diseases which are diagnosed, which have not been interrogated genetically, as well as those who are undiagnosed and most likely rare. We see a lot of patients with rare diseases in our institution. We know by some work we have done the last five years that one in seven patients who come to Mayo Clinic comes because of a rare condition. And so... With this in mind, we created a program for rare and diagnosed diseases called PROUD, and we started to create genomic clinics within different practices to engage practitioners to be able to test those patients 
And so this is where we are as far as the rare diseases, our center and the institution. At the same time, three years ago, we want to take genomics to a scalable approach. And we introduced a project called Tapestry, which intends to recruit 100,000 milking patients and provide clinical-grade exome sequencing, which is interpreted for 11 genes, what we know in the U.S. as a tier one CDC testing. Our focus has been transformation of the practice and implementation, and that's what I have. But I can expand more if you need. Yeah, let's start with PROUD. So P-R-A-U-D, for those of you who want to look up the program for rare and undiagnosed diseases is the alternate spelling. What have you learned from that program? What was hard about implementing exome or genome sequencing or targeted panels into a healthcare system that traditionally may have handled it specialty by specialty and, and then trying to bring more maybe consistent umbrella program? And what did you learn from that? What worked out well about it? And what's been some of the challenges of making that change? This is a great question. And, you know, there are all these things that you learn from this process that you cannot describe in a paper sometimes. We wanted to introduce this concept to a few practices in the very beginning. And we realized that in order for us to be effective and create this umbrella approach, we need to work with clinical champions. And as we did that, we realized that some champions in some areas of medicine, some specific divisions, or departments, they were doing better than others in terms of identifying the right patients or taking the testing to where we wanted to go. And we realized that in order to be able to implement and execute this in a successful manner, we have to have the champions, but equally importantly, we have to have the leadership of the department engaging from the very beginning. Once we did that, we solved many challenges we were facing in the early months of the project. Engaging the department chair, the practice chair, the research chair made a big difference for all of us to understand what is the scope, what is out of scope, and how can we be able to execute the process. Once this happened and we created the environment, we learned that one champion did provide teaching to some of his colleagues. Although we had the tools available and the people around, yeah. the teaching was happening in the wards, in the clinic, in locations that we cannot understand all the times because we were helping the program, but we were not there in the clinics. Yeah. And that was the advantage. And we have one division where we started in nephrology. We started with one provider and in a year. We had 10. In two years, there were about 30 providers. They learned from each other and we were there to support them as this was growing. So that was one learning lesson. The other was that the more we provide a more supportive environment that those champions have easy access for information on genetics, it is profoundly important. We developed a novel approach to provide genetic counseling, and we described this into the paper. So we created a unit, which is a distinct entity within our EPIC system which if you are a champion, you can have access to order this genetic testing team that has the counselors you need to focus on those patients. And because our program was, has been, and continues to be very focused to specific rare diseases, those counselors are very well aligned with the issues of a particular disease. And having this support available also made a big difference for the champions because some of them, they need very little support Others, they may need more. 
And so having this, if you will, safe net that they can get as much input as they want at any time, it makes a big difference. Now, of course, those counselors, they see every single patient once we have to deliver the results. But as you realize, the support that the practitioner may need in the early phases or late phases of implementation, it may be different. And this flexibility, it was very important for them. And now if we take the other program you mentioned, tapestry, rather than being rare disease diagnosis focused, tapestry is focused on a very broad population, right? And as you mentioned, 11 tier one genes, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the results from that program, if you have any, or some of the genes that you're testing. And also, I'd love to hear about how you're thinking about broadening that gene list over time. I understand starting with the 11 makes total sense. You've got actionability. This is a very clear path. How do you think about branching out into some of the murkier areas of returner results into tier two and three, and even things like polygenic risk scores over time? Yeah. Yeah. So we started Tapestry because we want to have a tool for the practice to educate our practitioners at large. We want to have an opportunity for research discovery because in addition to the 11 genes, we get the full exome of these participants. And lastly, we wanted to create the education for the patient, for the practitioner, for the students. Tapestry is in collaboration with Helix from San Mateo, California. It's a CLIA exome, which means that this is a clinical grade exome. We focused on the 11 genes because this is what was recommended by CDC. But at the same time, if you recruit 100,000 people and you have results, we didn't have enough counselors to be able to return the results back for what we were expecting. And we were expecting about 2% positivity and we're about 1.8%. We're focusing on 11 genes, but practically we have three conditions, BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations, Lynch syndrome, and then familial hypercholesterolemia. Half of the patients that we have positive results, about 1,500 at the present time, they have a BRCA mutation. About 25 to 30%, they have Lynch mutation, and the rest is familial hypercholesterolemia. 65% of these individuals had no family history or personal history of cancer. So there are some people who were unsuspected of having a condition, and we found them having an actionable variant. Many of them have gone to prophylactic surgery even if the clinical algorithm indicates that they have to do so. So truly impactful for a very small number of patients. We would love to expand this to 80 genes in the coming years, and we have to find ways to be able to return the results in an efficient manner as we did before. So it's a matter of time whether this will happen. We learn also how people react to invitations for genomic testing. And we have a paper in writing right now where we describe the decision-making of the active rejections of the invitations. We have about 15,000 people in that category. And you'll find that many times it's either concerns about having the results in the medical record. Many times is lack of education of what this means to them and how predictive or impactful this can be for them and their families. And sometimes is also what people perceive about the process that it takes to be able to provide the specimen and get the results back. We have done all of this work by electronic education through videos and interactions. And so without being in a decentralized environment that we created for this study, I don't think we will be able to scale. You mentioned a challenge around returning results. What is the bottleneck there? Is it genetic counselor time? Is it doctor time? Is it something else? 
You know, sometimes people, they don't want to follow with this. We tell them that you have an actionable finding and we try to trace them. And it takes a lot of effort to find them, to trace them, to convey the results. It's not about our own counselors or our doctors. We will be happy to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. And so the path to getting to 100,000 and beyond is clear. You just need to outreach and sounds like continue to improve on how you message the program to people. We're very close to complete the study. I think by the end of 2023, we'll be able to conclude with 100,000. We're about 92,000 at the present time. Wow. It took us three years to invite and recruit people. We were expecting that we'll need five, but it seems like in three and a half years, we'll be able to conclude. So we're very happy about that. What also we did learn, and this work is now in submission, is that about 39% of patients who are tested positive, they have a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant for which we're very confident. And This percent, I don't think we will be in a position to identify those patients if we were following standard NCCN guidelines, which tells you that genetic testing, one day we'll all agree that it's superior to what we do in the practice at the current time. At the same time, we realize that a good portion of patients, they have the USs for which we need to do more work to understand what this means to them for some of the genes of interest. And that's something that we're working on. Have you all started to think about, and maybe this is actually relevant to some of the other work I know you're doing, looking at environmental exposures or the exposome, as as I think it's being called. I'd imagine that within the group of 100,000 people that you're testing, you're going to have ApoE4 carriers who are at risk of Alzheimer's. You're going to have LARC2 carriers and GBA carriers who are at risk of Parkinson's. And there's a big open question of, can we identify and treat people in these groups as an example early? And also what role does the environment play in tipping genetic risk one way or another? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that strand of work that you're focused on. So we created the program, as I said earlier, Tapestry for clinical implementation uh, to use as a tool to educate our practitioners, identify and help the participants, but equally importantly, to create a large data set with a depth of phenotypes for uh, research discovery. So the average participant in tapestry has about uh, 11 years of follow-up and more than 60 clinical encounters, not to mention laboratory tests and procedures. We have created an access committee for our own investigators. And in a matter of a year and a half, we have now more than 90 groups who we given them access to the data. And they work on this data for many different diseases and phenotypes. And we think that having this force of people from diverse interests will make good use of this data and the phenotypes for what they would like to study. Many of those are seasoned investigators who now have another access to information. Many of those are junior faculty who are going to launch a career. And we think it is very important to support them. What we found is that we have about 79,000 exomes available, about 15, 20,000 are in the process between sequencing until we get them back. We found that in this 75,000, a single exome is used at least eight times by this group of investigators, which means that there is an overlap of phenotypes that people are interested. So people who have diabetes and they may have fatty liver, or if they have inflammatory condition, they may have something, you know, what is correlates and this and that. So if you think this is a study that's supported by benefactors and by the Mayo Clinic, 
and it's expensive to do this at scale. But as you realize, when an exome is used 20 times down the road by different groups, the outcome and the benefit for the patients, the disease and the investigators, it will cover all the costs over time. And that's the importance. And so for us, the next five years is to understand those phenotypes from the genetic standpoint. But at the same time, as you alluded, we love to go to the space of the exposome because we truly believe that many of the next decade discoveries will become in this interface between genetics and exposures. And we would love to be in a position to do so. In fact, we can afford to develop Tapestry 2.0 to be able to become a multi-omics study where we can understand the methylome, the proteome, the exposome, the immunome in a more focused manner compared to what we did before, because I don't think we can afford doing this for 100,000 patients at the present time, although we would have done it if the funds were available, but again, it becomes enormously expensive. Any benefactors listening can find your email and let you know if they'd like to help, right? When we talk about the exposome, and maybe you can cover a few different disease areas, but if we start with gastroenterology or liver disease, where you've done a ton of work in the past, what are the untapped data sources there? What are the things that, if you could shine a light on particular parts of the exposome to bring in alongside transcriptomics, proteomics, genomics, what would that be? Yeah. So we have done a fair amount of work the last three to four years on the colostatic liver diseases. And what was very striking for us was the disparity between what we knew from surveys and what we found by doing testing. We had a paper probably six, seven years ago describing a thousand people with primary sclerosis and colangitis, and we found very little about exposures. We may find something about diet, specific diets associated with this disease, but nothing very striking. And then when we measured exposures, we found, for example, a fungicide to be strongly associated with a very high odds ratio with primary sclerosis colangitis, which we never suspected because the same question we asked more than a thousand patients and controls, we found no association on a survey. Now, what is remarkable, this particular fungicide, it's not used in the United States. It's used in other places. And probably they use it, as far as we know, to treat or prevent funguses on bananas and similar fruits. And so you realize that this is probably is imported one way or another from our diet. And so for me, this was the aha moment. And I thought, well, if this happens in this particular paradigm, we don't know these days what we eat, what we breathe, what we touch, and how those elements could become part of our biology, probably have become a part of our biology. And how can we study that? How do I know these exposures may have an effect on this particular cell type or organ or an organism? We don't. And that's something that we're very excited to study by creating all the environments that we have to create in a study design to do it properly. And so that can keep us busy for a long time. How can you study something like that? If we took the fungicide example and think about how to measure that across every possible exposure and every possible disease that you might be interested in, how do you do that? Or is that not the right way of breaking it down? You can do it in a number of ways, correct? And and of course, methodology and technology will improve over time. I think conceptually, the exposome was described by Chris Willis almost two decades ago, but not much was done in between because of inability to be able to scale. Now that we can do this with a blood drop, and we can confidently assess two, 300 exposures, I think this gives us enormous opportunity to make the association studies and understand what this means. I expect the methodologies will improve and the cost will drop to the point that we can do thousands of exposures at the same time. 
But at the same time, we have to think along the lines of let's do it in a very focused manner in the very beginning. And we may want to study a particular phenotype or a particular process or a particular cell type. And what we have done at the human level, we were trying to correlate chemical exposures with metabolic pathways or malfunction of metabolic pathways, if you will. And if you do that, we can now say that particular exposures change particular metabolic pathways. So we connect exposures with metabolic pathways. I can see very soon we'll be in a position to connect exposures with methylation, with metabolic pathways, maybe with immune molecules. It's only time, I think, it will be in between what I'm describing. And we're doing this in my own disease of interest. And so I think the sky is the limit to start thinking along these lines and engage investigators and groups to do this type of work because we're going to learn a lot what is an exposure and what's the biological effect because that's what it counts, correct? If you have an exposure and the biological effect, it's very minimal and doesn't correlate with disease outcomes. It's like we have a variant that doesn't cause disease. I can live with this variant. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) So it's the same concept. I think this work that you're referencing, correct me if I'm wrong, is a paper you published in January of this year, Environmental Chemicals and Endogenous Metabolites in Bile of USA and Norway Patients with Primary Sclerosing Cholangitis. Is that right? This is the second paper. The first was published in Hepatology Communications the year before, which is a case control study that shows the association. The one that you mentioned with the bile is a case study. So we're doing the case control as we speak, but it highlights also the importance of chemicals in the bile and that those are probably also relevant to the disease that we're studying. And so the blood drop that you mentioned, is it mass spec or what is it? It's mass spec spec methodology for the most part. Yes. And I guess you can think about different tissues. It sounds like you've done it in bile as well. That's correct. So this was done in blood. We had done this in bile. We're like to do this in urine. And actually, we're starting to do this on liver tissue per se from expanded livers. Yeah, you've really got me thinking about this. The number of directions you can go with this are incredible. And some of the tissues are going to be hard to get to, but you may find, I'm I'm thinking for brain diseases, there may be cells in the nose you can scrape out and get a sense of what's going on. Where do you see that stream of research going? I'd love for you to paint a little bit of a picture of the Center for Individualized Medicine in 5, 10, 20 years. What does it look like that's different than today, bringing all these streams together? For us, the way we're thinking about is let's understand the basics of the exome or the genome to have the framework, to have the foundation. And let's build from there the other omics, the methylomics, the transcriptomics, the proteomics, the immune profiling, I call the immunomics, and the exposures. And let's bring those together. I suspect in 2030 and beyond, we're going to do those tests even before we see the patient in some practices, particularly when we have to deal with complex and rare diseases where we don't have standards or methodologies to assess those patients. And then we're going to be able to step back and say, from what we do, this is your germline risk for disease. Those are your exposures. And those are the exposures that they have an impact on your biology. And then let's see how we can create a profile for you or an approach for your health. Some of this may be relevant to what you came for. And those are our answers. Some of those, they will happen because we predict based on X, Y, and Z for what you have and what you have been exposed. 
And I think this will become a reality once we have the studies to support this concept. So we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, but it's interesting, Mark. How much are you thinking today, would you say, about more focused treatment of people who come in with disease to the clinic versus how do we actually get upstream and prevent? Because I think it needs to be a mix of both for obvious reasons, possibly forever. But what does that mix look like today? And how do you see that changing? I think the mix right now, it's prevent probably 5-10% and the rest is true to what you have. You know, if we can be able to double or triple this, prevent 5-10 years from now, I think that will be huge. Where's the low-hanging fruit in the prevent? Where are the parts of whether it's particular diseases or technologies that you think help us get that next 5 or 10% that's the easiest? I think we're going to be able to apply this for germline conditions where we know that we have rare variants and they have an impact on disease. I would love to see what we're doing with tapestry for the CDCTR1 or for the cancer genes that relate with germline mutations to be implemented. But you have to realize, Patrick, that a lot of this is not what we want to do as practitioners, but what the patients want to see, correct? We realize that our uptake for tapestry is about 10%. We invited more than a million people in three years' time to recruit about 100,000. And if we cannot educate and convey the findings to the participants, if we cannot prove that this screening actually it helps prevent disease, it reduces cost, it improves quality of life, I don't think we're going to see a very high uptake from patients. And so we're doing actually a study, we call it ECOS, where we're going to take all the tapestry positive participants for BRCA and for Lynch and follow them for 10 years and see what happens to their healthcare utilization and their families to see, was it worth it to have this test done that is positive and what this means the long term? I think that will give us a much better understanding to convince our patients, third parties, all of us, that this is the right thing to do. And the same will apply to environment. And I think also sometimes it may be easier to take into account the environment to prevent disease than to take into account a genetic defect to prevent disease because it may be sometimes much more difficult to do so. I'm a hepatologist. I have seen a number of patients with iron overload. At some point, I was thinking this is a genetic disease, and it is, but someone can say, well, if iron was not important in the environment and it didn't exist, if it didn't exist, hemochromatosis would not be the case. We need iron for a number of other processes in the human body, correct? But if we didn't need iron for the body, it didn't exist in the environment, hemochromatosis would be the same with Kapper and Wilson's disease, okay? So we know also that some of the things in our diet, grapefruit, affects metabolism of medications. You know, it's an exposure. How do we know that other exposures do not interfere with our medications, our chemotherapies, our other treatments? We don't. Simply, we don't. Yeah, grapefruit knocks out one of the cytochrome P450 enzymes, right? It's kind of humbling to think about how little we know about biology. Exactly, exactly. So that's the opportunity, though, to learn more and trying to guide patients and families of how can we best advise them for what they need and what they are asking for their health, for their wellness. Yeah, this has been an amazing discussion. I just want to close out on hearing about how you're Porting this knowledge to other institutions. Mayo has obviously always been a leader in the medical field. What can you do to take what you've learned and bring it to as many clinics, not just in the US, but around the world, factoring in their local health systems and the differences? What do you think you can do to expand that impact beyond your walls? 
We like to publish more to make this work visible to others. Actually, we submitted the training grant to the NHGRI to be able to create an opportunity for training the workforce of the future to educate scientists and physicians on individualized medicine, how we can make more discoveries to bring to the practice and to serve the patients. We have a conference every year focusing on individualized medicine topics. And we are very active on podcasts and other social media to kind of disseminate this information, all this knowledge. And we like to hear from others where they are. For example, we like to see a rare disease consortium in the upper Midwest where we can collaborate with other institutions to learn from expertise, to hear their challenges and provide their own thoughts. So a lot of work to keep us busy. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And if people want to, I think you're active on Twitter, which I guess is called X now, Dr. Lazaridis. Yeah. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. And thanks everyone as always for listening. We really appreciate it. Please leave us a five-star review if you like the podcast or more importantly, share it with a friend. Thank you. And we will see you next time.